Well, we are continuing to, to work through 2 Peter today, and this section that we're in is very difficult. Um, it, it's a hard section. It's very sobering. It's very dark because it's a pronouncement of judgment on those who would harm the church that God loves from the inside, the, the people that Peter's already identified as the false teachers. And as we go through this passage, you'll hear a tone of anger and judgment here. And anytime we, we read through a passage that has that kind of tone, it can bring up some serious questions about like what we believe about God, um, because what kind of God would, would be like that? I know that um, when our first daughter was born, I remember being in the hospital room and, and holding her and having this whole new feeling of love that was different than anything I'd experienced before. Like there was this, this love for this person who's completely dependent on us, who, who I just met, um, but all of a sudden I feel this, this obligation and this care and this concern for her and just this whole new love. It's like this emotion that didn't exist and didn't even get like clicked on until I, I held my first daughter. But then what I learned in, in the years afterwards is that because of that emotion and connected to that emotion, that I also started to experience a whole new kind of anger. And it was anger at those who would want to harm my children, whether they wanted to harm them physically or through lies or false ideologies or emotionally or harm their souls with lies about Christ. Love compelled me to, to a different kind of anger toward those who would harm them. And, and often when we talk about God, we think that we have to choose. You know, is God the angry God of the Old Testament or is he the loving God of the New Testament? Well, you'll actually see in our passage today that, that God in the New Testament displays anger too. And also if you read through the whole Old Testament, God again and again is called relentlessly loving and compassionate and merciful. And so the whole Old Testament God versus New Testament God distinction isn't really there when you read the whole thing. But also, we don't have to choose because righteous anger flows from love. When those that you love are threatened or harmed, you rightly feel anger. G.K. Chesterton wrote that the true soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what's behind him. And, and in our text today, you'll hear God fighting. You'll hear God pronouncing some harsh, harsh judgments on false teachers, and it's because he loves the people that they're harming. Now, you might expect that the harshest language in the Bible would be reserved for, like, the bad people out there. That it would be reserved for the people who don't go to church, they don't believe in Jesus, they don't embrace our values. And, and to be sure, all sin is serious, and everyone will give an account to God someday for how they live. But the strongest negative language, especially in the New Testament, isn't aimed at people out there. It's aimed at people in here. It's especially aimed at religious leaders who would use their positions to exploit and to harm. And Jesus' harshest words were for religious leaders, not for the Romans. And that's because the corruption of, there's like flies, and I don't know why. We, we got rid of the bats, and so now there are flies. So I don't know what happens when we get rid of the flies, but uh, so sorry about that. Um, but the reason that there, there's such hard language uh, against the religious leaders is because the corruption of the best thing is the worst thing. I mean, it's bad when people who don't claim to know the Lord sin, but it's even worse when those who claim to know the Lord, and especially those who claim to be leaders in the Christian community, when they sin. It's bad because it's, it's mixed with all kinds of hypocrisy and it harms a lot of people. It's, it, it's bad to use the best thing, which is Jesus, 
to do the worst thing, which is harm others. And so for those that Peter's already introduced here as the false teachers, those who deny the Lord with their lifestyles, those who lead people astray with their sensuality, those who exploit the church, Peter lays out how God feels about what they're doing. And we'll see a few things as we go through this passage. We'll see warnings to the false teachers themselves. We'll see how bad it can actually get among us. We'll see a little bit of how false teachers operate, and and we'll see right through to the core of how they typically deceive, the the central false promise that they make, the central lie that they tell. But then mingled throughout this passage, there'll be hope for God's people who are are oppressed by them and, and hurt by them. And we need passages like this for a few reasons. I mean, one, we know we need it because this is God's word. And, and it's true that as you read a, a judgment-type passage like this one, it doesn't fit in our very flippant brand of Christianity that we have today. But that's one of the reasons that we need it, because we don't want to filter through the Bible and find the passages that fit. We, we want the Bible to be shaping us. We want God to be speaking to create his people. We want to be shaped and formed by it. We don't want to form it in our image. But also we need these warnings. We, we need warnings of how bad we could get if we let sin grow in our hearts, especially those of us who would preach or teach or lead or counsel or influence or parent, even even if we want to casually give Christian advice to our friends, we should take these warnings to heart because we don't want to be one of these false teachers. This whole thing could also guide us because a teacher really is anyone who influences us. And so so we should be wise about who our influences are, and we should be alert to the ways that they could lead us astray so that we don't fall under their sway when they might try to. And we should especially be equipped to listen for that central lie that false teachers were telling then and that they're telling today. And and then all of this, hopefully, will give us some hope that, that even though the church is always experiencing pressure on the outside and pressure on the inside, God is faithful to his people. And and so Peter starts with a warning to the false teachers here in verse four. He says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So first, Peter here lays out three examples of God's judgment as a warning to to false teachers who would lead the church astray. And the first one is angels in verse four. It says that God judges angels. And it seems like the point here is that if God didn't spare angels when they sinned, certainly he won't spare us. And one of the ways that false teachers lead people astray is with charm, and with strength and with charisma. They can get really good at talking their way out of most situations. And they may be so used to using people and getting away with it by being able to talk their way out of it, charm their way out of it, that they think that somehow in the end, 
they'll even get away with how they led their lives. But here he says, God judged the angels. And if he wasn't impressed with them, he's not going to be impressed with us. He isn't going to be fooled by our charm and our eloquence. If he didn't spare angels, then he won't spare a false teacher, no matter how great they are, how strong they appear, no matter how eloquent they are, no matter how good they are at talking their way out of things, they're going to stand before his judgment throne and they won't be able to weasel their way out of that. The second one is is he talks about how the world was judged in Noah's day in verse five. And the point here is that God spared eight people. And this wasn't like eight people when there was a population of 20. This was a a well-populated globe and God spared eight. And so it seems like the point here is that, that even if it seems like everybody is corrupt, joining in in that corrupt majority won't protect us. So if everybody like votes for what's wrong or celebrates what's wrong and all of society outside or inside the church accepts what, what's wrong, that doesn't change the fact that it's wrong. God was able to discerningly judge the world and save eight people out of a heavily populated ancient world so majority doesn't determine truth and ultimately doesn't protect us in the end. We can get a lot of security from being part of a really big crowd, but one by one we'll stand before the judgment throne of God. And then the third example of judgment that he lays out here is the judgment on, on the wicked in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he goes into a little more detail here where Abraham's nephew Lot lived among the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says in verses 7 and 8 that he was tormented by what he saw. At least at the time when he was living there, he was, he was righteous. And he saw people around him nearly all becoming corrupt. He saw these cities that had given themselves over to sensuality. And it was just a huge source of sorrow to him. These communities had fallen apart. They'd accepted all kinds of sin. It got so bad that in Genesis 19, Lot takes some angels into his house, but but some of the bold and perverted men of the city thought that those angels were men and they came and were beating down the door so that he would send those men out so that they could sleep with them. And then even though those angels blinded the men who were beating down the door to get in, they still kept trying to beat down the door to satisfy those perverted lusts. And so their society became really much as, as ours has become, very arrogantly celebrating sexual sin. And then what, what went with it was a boldness and a pride and then a disregard that was just kind of this smug disregard for the poor. In Ezekiel 16, verse 49, God says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. And so Lot was living among them, and he was just constantly tormented by seeing them live in ways that were such an affront to God's design. And with such arrogance and defiance, with no regret, no brokenness, no shame, and it was just this constant source of anguish for him. And then that feeling was kind of mutual. The, the men of the city didn't like Lot because he just seemed to be so judgmental because all this stuff really bothered him. And so in Genesis 19.9, they, they're accusing Lot and they say, this fellow came to sojourn and he's become the judge. He's not even from here. He just came here to live as a visitor, but now he's judging all of us. But God rescued Lot from Sodom. And again, the point of all this in verses 9 and 10, it says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, 
and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So the point is that God knows how to sort people out. In the end, he'll rescue the righteous and he'll judge the wicked. Those who live in defiling passions and despising authority will be judged in the end. And eventually God looks at his people that he's made righteous and he says, they've suffered enough. And in that single act in Sodom and Gomorrah, God rescued and judged. His act of anger and vengeance was an act of love and rescue for the righteous. So that's just a, a little comfort here. Augustine said that Christians always live with the persecutions of the world on one side and the consolations of God on the other side. And so here was Lot just tormented by the world he was living in, frustrated, appalled, but eventually consoled and rescued. And Peter wants us to know that that, that rescue is coming. So this passage gives that warning to false teachers, and then next it just lays out just how bad it can get. And this next group of verses doesn't have any do or don't in it. It's just describing how far we can fall. So verse 10, it says, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, their blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. There's a lot here, including some references to a text that we don't have preserved for us in the Bible. But, but it seems like the story that he's getting at here is that the good angels are humble enough to not personally in their own power rebuke fallen angels. We won't turn there now, but Jude actually gets into a little more detail here. He refers to a story that's not in the Bible where, where Michael the archangel and Satan are disputing over the, the body of Moses. And in that dispute, Michael wouldn't rebuke Satan, but instead he said, the Lord rebuke you. So even Michael, the archangel, didn't think of himself highly enough that he would even like have in himself the boldness to rebuke this fallen angel. But the point here is that false teachers among us can get to where they are so full of themselves that they have no restraint on who, will, who they'll insult and speak against and no restraint on who or what they're tearing down. And so among us, among Christians, things can get so bad that we will mock sacred truths and sacred scripture and then carry ourselves in a haughty way. And Twitter is loaded with people like this. People who are saying, yeah, I'm definitely still Christian, but then they mock some of the central truths of Christianity, like the virgin birth and the sinlessness of Christ. Like I can mock those as foolish ideas, but then still call myself Christian. We can kind of catch this, this thing that's going on in our culture where we love to tear things down. In our culture, in our day, we are living in a day of tearing down things, tearing down old institutions, old truths, old doctrines. We don't we're not good at honoring our mother and father. And so we get rid of everything that they've passed down to us. And so we've seen as like we've torn down the, the definition of marriage, the covenant of marriage gets mocked as we've treated it like a throwaway institution. We've torn down the authority of scripture as that gets mocked by Christians on Twitter as well. 
We don't respect like the ancient and the tested things. We tear down what our parents built and we, we tend to believe that it, if, it, if it isn't new, that it isn't true. And as this mindset spreads within the church and we become increasingly arrogant and bold and willful, it'll do what verse 12 says it'll do to us, which is it will destroy. We'll lose the substance of, of the things we believe. We can tear things down, not realizing that we're sawing off the branch that we're sitting in. We can become really bold about it and even boast about our sin on social media. He says here that they revel in the daytime. I mean, at least in Sodom, they did their evil at night. But we can get so bold with our sin and so willful that, that we boast about it online. And then verse 13 says that they are blots and blemishes who revel in these deceptions while they feast with you. So they're tearing down with their lives and with their words the things that Christians hold sacred, but then showing up for church on Sunday and, and showing up for the picnic and not feeling any contradiction at all. And now maybe just kind of for a moment of relief before we keep going, you might be thinking, well, I, am I the blot in the blemish? Is this talking about me? Well, on the one hand, if the shoe fits, I mean, if you're arrogantly living in sensuality, if you're contradicting the Christian faith with your life or your doctrine, you're feeling great about Christian fellowship while you're boldly living contrary to the Christian faith, then yeah, this is you. And I would urge you to, to run to Christ. But if you're here, feeling like you lived contrary to what you believe this week and you're coming in convicted and broken and confessing and struggling, then this isn't talking about you. I mean, Lot, who is described here as righteous, was a very sinful man. And, and the righteous ones of God, those who have been redeemed, we do continue to fall short of living out what we believe. Paul says, who is worthy of these things? But there's a big difference between someone who says, this is true, and this is good, and the standard is right, and I failed again, but I'm confessing and forsaking my sin and struggling, and I'm here today because I know I still need Jesus and still need the cross. I hope we're all saying that. But there's a difference between that person and the one who says, I'm whoever I want to be, and if my life contradicts the Bible, my life is right. And nobody's going to tell me what to do. There's a difference between sinning and being proud and sinning and being regretful. And, and if you're in that, that latter category of this week, you didn't live up to the things you believe, welcome to the club. There is so much mercy and grace at the cross of Jesus Christ for sinners like us who run to him again and again, for all who would repent. But verse 12 warns that for those who don't repent, there's destruction. There's a big difference between those who sin and confess and those who are bold and willful, stone cold in their sin. No trembling, no tears, open defiance in church on Sunday. We are a, a room full of strugglers. The only righteous one in this room is Jesus Christ who, who promised to be with us when we gather. But there are some who remain bold and willful, revel in deceptions, and then stand and sing the songs with everybody else.
And Peter, with his last months on earth, warned us by writing this that that would be a reality. Verse 14, he says, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. She says they're not satisfied with their sins, so they sin more. They prey on those whose feet aren't firmly planted in the gospel yet. They know how to manipulate for their own gain. Verse 15, he says, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. We don't have time to look at the story of Balaam and his donkey right now. That could be some good Sunday afternoon reading for you. But essentially, Balaam was an Old Testament prophet who said a lot of true things, but in the end, his heart wasn't right. He, he betrayed Israel, ended up being a wicked prophet in the end. And there was a time when Balaam was, was willfully sinning against God, riding his donkey to go essentially prophesy some false things for money and prestige. So he, he, was, he was on his way to do what was wrong, willfully opposing God, riding his donkey on this bad mission. And so God allowed the donkey to speak to keep him from sinning. And so here, like the donkey that's known for its stubbornness was more submitted to God than Balaam, who was supposed to be a prophet. And God, kind of to shame Balaam, allows the donkey to teach him. Peter says that the donkey was there to restrain his madness. I mean, think about that. Like, here is a, a donkey that can talk, and that was the least crazy thing that was going on. That, that Balaam got so crazy in his defiance against God that a talking donkey was less crazy than him. And so when the talking donkey is the most sensible one in the room, you have fallen a long way. And so he says, we can, we can be like that. We can just be absolutely out of our mind when we're committed to our sin. Verse 17, he says, they're waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Waterless springs, like a well that looks good from the outside and it draws people in because everybody wants water, but then they get there and there's no water there. He says false teachers can be like that. They can draw a crowd. People can be attracted to them. But when they are, when they get to them, they end up only thirsty. Now he starts to get into a little bit of how the, the false teachers operate. He says, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So he says that they speak these loud boasts of folly or swelling words of vanity. So they can use very big, very complex words in speech so that people admire them for knowing so much. Big words can give the impression that you're smart, that you're well-read that you've studied these things. They can make you seem elite and kind of uh, above everybody else. And, and you can use big words to your advantage. There's a, a woman on Twitter, she's a seminary student, and she decided to prank some of her, her guy friends in seminary by making up the names of some non-existent theologians to ask if they'd read any of their work. And, so, and then when they respond, she posts their response on her Twitter feed, crosses out their names, She's that kind. But so, so she texts one of them and says, have you ever read the Dutch Reformed theologian Janus de Wienhauer? And one guy responded, yeah, not as much as I should, though. <laughs> she asked another guy, what are your thoughts on Dutch reformer Hans van Kvortengroot's refusal to fully condemn Arminius? 
And the guy responded, disappointing, but not surprising, to be honest. So she's making all this up, and, and the guys are impressed with the big words, and, and they feel like they have to be equally impressive because big words can impress. And so he says here that false teachers will, will use big words because other people will think, wow, they must know something deep, when they might just know how to use a, th a thesaurus. So they use big swelling words, and they also entice with sensual passions of the flesh. I mean, people want to do what they want to do, and so if false teachers can give them a way to feel justified in living the life that they already want to live and make it feel Christian, well, that's going to be really attractive. And then here's the core of their deception, verse 19. This is the central lie. This is the one we should be listening for. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. So the central promise is freedom. And I think this is the lie that's doing the most damage among us here at Grace Road. It's the lie that the most important thing for me is to find out who I am or to create who I am, to make myself into who I want to be, and to do so, I have to cast off the voices of everybody around me who might challenge me in, in that quest. That I would be the best me if I didn't have anybody on the outside at all speaking into that and telling me what to do. And our culture believes this. We believe that I can be who I want to be. And if I feel a certain way, that determines who I am. And this really comes from philosophers who don't believe that there's a creator. They don't believe there's a maker. They don't believe there's a God. And if there is no God, then mankind is now at the top of that food chain, and we create our own meaning. We create our own value because there is no inherent meaning and purpose in mankind if we weren't created from the outside. So therefore, without God in the picture, we're self-determining, we're self-actualizing, I can make myself whoever I want to be, and we're self-moralizing, where I determine what's right and wrong for me. Now, that's how you live when you don't believe that there's a maker. You basically just make yourself. And in our therapeutic age, we can tell ourselves that if I feel a certain way, that's who I am. And my number one task is to be the freest version of that. So you do you. Cast off every other voice. Make yourself. And now Jesus did say, he said, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So isn't this what Jesus wants? For us to, to dig down deep and find our truest self and create our truest self and then become that with no hindrance. He wants us to be free, doesn't he? But we have to let Jesus define his own terms. This Jesus who said that he wants us to be free, that he wants to free us, some people came up to him and asked him, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? So what, what does that look like? Describe this free life that you want us to live. And Jesus' response in Matthew 22, verse 37 is, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So here's true freedom. Here's who you were made to be. Go all in, loving and obeying your heavenly father. With all your mind, study him. With all your strength, put energy into it. Follow him, serve him, live for him. 
And then the second commandment is pour yourself out in love for those around you. There's no talk of finding your true self and casting off restraint. Jesus didn't say this is the greatest commandment. You do you. He said the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And and we're absolutely right if we start to feel like this kind of Christianity clashes with the entire way of thinking today. It definitely does. It clashes with new morality. It clashes with new definitions of marriage and gender. It clashes with the entire quest to create and express new identities for ourselves. And the central lie of false teachers in our age and in the church is you do you. Don't let anyone tell you who you are or what to do. Be free from all of that. But Peter calls it for what it is. Verse 19, he says, they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves to corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So it might look like freedom, but following the desires of the self is really only enslaving in the end. All of us are going to serve somebody. We're all going to have some Lord. We're all going to have some master. But only Jesus is the kind Lord and master. Then he gives this final warning, verse 20. He says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So he says, don't go back. And you left that life, and you left those lies for a reason. There was one time where, where you recognized that this is empty. You felt the weight of your sin. You felt the guilt. And then you heard this message of Jesus. You heard that he died to pay the price for all of that, to free you from the guilt that you deserve, to free you from the wrath of God. You heard that that's a free gift. And that you can turn and believe in him and receive that and have a whole different life. And that was attractive at first. So don't go back. Because if you've experienced, even from the outside, a little bit of the goodness of Jesus, and then you chose to reject it to go back to those old ways instead, what hope is there for you if you've already spit out the only cure? So let's not be deceived by the lies that there's anything better than Jesus. Let's not be deceived by by the lie that there's any life better than the life of loving God and neighbor. They're easier lives, but not better lives. And the big application is the same for absolutely everybody. Let's run to Jesus and his cross. So if you're here today and, and you're not Christian, you don't know the Lord, the good news of Christianity is that you can be rescued. That yes, you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God like all of us. You didn't keep God's perfect standard. But Jesus will forgive. He came and he lived among us, the only one to do that perfectly. And then he went to the cross and and died as our substitute to pay the price for our sin and our guilt. And then three days later, he rose and conquered death. So scripture teaches that if we believe in him, if we turn from whatever it was that we were trusting to make us okay and we turn to him alone, 
If we turn from whatever was our Lord and master, whatever that ultimate thing was before, and we turn to him and receive that free gift just by believing in him by faith, he will receive us. He doesn't lose anyone who comes to him. He doesn't reject anyone who comes to him on his terms. So if you're not a believer, you can believe and receive that free gift today. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord, but you're tempted. You hear the lie that there's, there's more freedom somewhere else. And you know that the Christian life is hard. Maybe you've had some bad run-ins with Christians or the church. And you're wondering if just casting the whole thing off and living for yourself, regardless of, of who you harm in the process, might just be the thing you want to do. Don't believe the lie. Run to Jesus. Maybe you're in this false teacher category in some of your relationships. And whether you use big words to lead astray or just entice people to live like they want to live instead of the way Jesus wants them to live, all the warnings in this passage are for you. That one day soon, you will see your judge. And you won't be able to talk your way out of it. Your heart will be laid bare before him. And you'll be looking in the eyes of the one that you spurned and derided and mocked as he's enthroned before you in power. And you'll have to give an account where none can really be given. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can lay down your arms and run to Jesus and he will receive and forgive you. But you got to stop living by lies. And if you're maybe right now just boldly sinning, thinking now I'm finally free. Living how I want to live and I still get to go to church on Sunday. I still have the same fellowship. I still pray the same prayers. Well, repent, and you'll find mercy in Christ. So for all of us, there's some, some solemn and serious warnings here, but there's a consistent offer of grace if we'll turn and believe and repent. And so, so let's pray. Well, Father, we confess that, that lies become enticing. They're enticing because often we want to pursue our sin. We want to believe that, that somehow it's okay. And so we call that freedom or we excuse it as grace. But we know what we're doing. So Father, please forgive us. And Jesus, we thank you for going to that cross as our substitute. Thank you for showing there that you are willing to forgive us for our blasphemy, for, for our unbelief, for our rejection of you. You made that way so that we could be forgiven. And, and so we turn from the filthy rags of our own self-righteousness and we turn to your righteousness as our only hope today. And Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would keep teaching us so that we don't believe lies. Help us to really believe that your way is best even when it's harder. Help us to really know true freedom. And then help us to discern its forgeries. Help us to live in that freedom, freely giving ourselves to love our Lord and to love our neighbor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them.
So if we have drawn near to God through Christ today and confessed our, confessed our sins, we also have a Christ who is praying for us, making intercession for us, and so eager to forgive us that he gave his life for us.